Uh, the first passage tonight is from the book of Job, uh, chapter 42, verses 1 to 17, and is on page 383. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuite, and so far the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again, and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters, and everyone who had known him before, came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance, an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died, old and full of years. The New Testament reading comes from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 to 12, and can be found on page 856. <coughs> be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the lands to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Let me have my welcome. If I haven't met before, my name is Paul Dale. I'm the pastor here, and we're working with, through the book of James, and we've hit James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12 tonight. 
Um, it's been just great tonight just to, to praise God in song, hasn't it? Just to lift our voices and declare his goodness. And how good just to, to pray to him. Uh, and just to hear about our brothers and sisters around the world. So I'm going to pray now. Uh, pray for first things and ask that God would speak to us now through his word. So please join with me. How great is our God. Sing with me. Uh, Father, we want to lift up your name because you are worthy of all praise. You are mighty, you are powerful, you are faithful, you are majestic. Uh, Father, we pray now for our brothers in Christ who are in prison for their faith and we plead with you, Lord, that you might uh, release them, uh, take them back to their families and give them wisdom as they, as they live for you in that place. Uh, we pray for ourselves now and we thank you for the privilege of just gathering in safety. Uh, we thank you for the scriptures in our own tongue. Uh, we thank you for the good work that you are doing in and through us. And we thank you as your word goes out that you promised that you would uh, transform us by your spirit. Uh, Lord, your word is so powerful and it penetrates deeply. And I pray for a great work of your spirit tonight. Please humble us. Uh, please change us. Uh, please would you uh, correct any wrong thoughts, uh, encourage us, rebuke us, inspire us, I pray. And I plead with you that uh, none of us here would leave this building tonight uh, without your word fixed deeply into our hearts. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I look back on, on my life, I look back on the last year or the last 39 years, I guess a word that springs to mind as I look back on life is the word uh, unexpected. Unexpected. Uh, just things happen which I didn't plan to happen. Things happen to me which I didn't expect to happen to me. And some of those things are what I call the, the pleasant unexpected. Right? You might get a new job that you never expected to get. You might get a new romance you never expected to get, or a, a baby you never expected to have, or a friendship you never expected to have. Just nice things and pleasant things, and you just sit there and say, wow, thank you, God. I never expected that. Thank you, God. But I guess you're like me, and there's lots of things that have happened to, my, in, to me in my life which were unpleasant, unexpected things. You never expected to suffer the ill health. You never expected to be retrenched. You never expected that loved one to die. You never expected that loneliness or that depression to hit. And you kind of cry out, Whoa, God, stop it, what are you doing? I didn't expect that. And my question tonight is this. How do you cope with the unpleasant unexpected things how do you deal with life when the the rubbish hits you and what what happens when tragedy strikes what happens when your health fails what happens when you suffer depression and you just can't go to work anymore what happens when you lose your job and you can't afford to pay the mortgage anymore what happens when your wife walks out on you? What happens when your child dies? What happens when you're persecuted for being a Christian? Or what happens when you're just, you're so lonely that you just can't get out of bed in the morning? 
What happens? Are you going to walk away from God because all this rubbish has happened to you? Or are you going to worship God in the midst of your suffering? Are you going to shout at God and scream at God and demand answers from God? Or are you going to trust him in, in a deeper and a more secure and a firmer way? Will you love him more or will you just give up on him? See, the way that you react to the unpleasant, unexpected will be shaped by two things in your life. It will be shaped by, by your worldview and by your God view. It will be shaped by the way that you, you see life and you see your goals in life and your destination in life and your worldview if you want. And it will be shaped by your understanding of God and who he is and what his character is and what he's really like and what he's doing to you. Let me try and show you. If your worldview is success, I live to be successful. I want to leave my mark on the world. I want to achieve things in the world. When the setback happens, when the tragedy strikes, you will spiral downwards and downwards and ask the question, why? What did I do wrong? What can I do differently? Life is not fair. I'm not successful like I planned. If your worldview is, is happiness, I want to be happy. I want to have a happy marriage and a happy family. I want to just be happy in life. Let me tell you right now, you'll be disappointed, you'll be disillusioned because it's unrealistic. We live in a fallen world and you're never going to be totally happy in life. If your worldview is your health and I want to be fitter and stronger and thinner and mightier, let me tell you, your health is not in your control. It can just go like that. If your worldview is any of those things, when tragedy strikes, you'll just walk away from God. What about your God view? If your view of God is a God who is a control freak, he's just is controlling everything and he is completely cruel, and when the tragedy strikes, you'll just kind of go, that's okay, that's what my God's like, just come on, hit me God, hit me one more time. If your view of God is a distant, impersonal God, when the tough times come, you'll just shout and scream at somebody who is out there. If your view of God is, is impotent and weak and frail, then you'll talk about fate and then you'll just try and control your life and try and deal with the mess of your life. And tonight I want to show you a worldview and a God view that I reckon will change your life. It will radically change your life because it will change the way that you deal with the unexpected. Let me tell you what they are. The worldview is this. The Lord is coming. The worldview that will change your life, that the backdrop you want, the goal of life, is the return of Jesus Christ. When the Saviour walks back into his world to gather you and to gather me and to take us home to glory. That's the backdrop. That's the goal. That's the destination. That's where we're heading. That's what we're living for. And that worldview will change the way that you live today and especially when the tragedy strikes. Do you ever stop and think about that? Do you ever wake up and say, the Lord is coming? Do you ever pray, come Lord Jesus? Do you ever live in this world expecting and waiting and longing for your Saviour to return? That's what James tells us to do. 
James 5 verse 7, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. I'll read it again. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. That's the time frame. That's what he expects. That's what he lives for. The parousia, or, or the return of Jesus, or the coming of the Lord. The word used in verse 7 is the word parousia. It's a word used for uh, an arrival of a king. It's the coming of royalty. Uh, the Bible never uses the word second coming. We talk about the second coming. The Bible doesn't talk about the second coming. The problem with the word second coming is that you immediately start to compare it to the first coming. It's going to be nothing like his first coming. You know, when Jesus first came, he came in obscurity. When he comes again, he's going to come in glory and splendor and power. When, when Jesus first came, he came to a little town in Bethlehem. When, when he comes again, every eye will see him. The whole world will see him. When he came the first time, just a few people worshipped him. When he comes again, the whole world and all nations and all tribes and all language will worship him. That's the parousia, that's the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's real, it's physical, it's visible, it's spectacular. It's your Messiah coming to take you home. And you know, we know our Bible talks about the return of Jesus. But I fear it's kind of dropped off our agenda. Gone are the days where he preached about the return of Christ. Gone are the days where people uh, just talked to each other about the return of Jesus. When was the last time that you had a conversation with somebody over supper and they talked about, my Messiah's going to come again? We just don't talk about it, do we? And we tick the doctrinal box, I believe in the return of Jesus. But do we? Do we live by it? Does it shape your very existence? And James, in this practical book, he says, I'm not talking about faith, I'm talking about faith and deeds. I'm not talking about belief, I'm talking about belief that impacts your behaviour. The return of Jesus Christ must change the way that you live today. That's your worldview. James says, I know you're under pressure. I know it's tough to live in this world and not flirt with the world. I know that it's hard to control your tongue. I know you're being persecuted for being a Christian. But I also know this, verse 7, the Lord is coming. That's the fact. And Jesus knew that. Do you know in the Bible, in the Gospels rather, the return of Christ is mentioned every 13 verses. One in 13 verses mention the return of Jesus or the kingdom coming or the end of the world. That's how important it is. And Jesus says, you know, I'm going to warn you, there's going to be wars and rumours of wars and famines and earthquakes and, and then the trumpets will sound and then you're going to see me and the heavens are going to open. I'm going to come down with my people and the dead in Christ will rise. I'm going to take you home and you're going to have transformed bodies and new bodies without any sickness, any, any oppression. It's going to be spectacular. And on that day I'll bring justice to the world. Justice that we long for, justice that we cry out for. But that's when it's going to happen on that last day. And my fear is in this church and in this diocese and in this city, we're so fixated by the cross of Christ. And yeah, the cross is beautiful. It's majestical as our Saviour dies for us, as he cries out, it's finished and your sins are forgiven. It's the most beautiful expression of love, the most beautiful exchange that ever happened. But listen carefully, Jesus Christ is not dead. He's not dead anymore. He's been raised. And he's ascended. And he is going to come again. This is not my home. Heaven is my home. I don't belong to this world. I'm heading for a great world called heaven. And I should be crying out, Come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Because if I'm not, 
If I'm not looking for it and expecting it, when the tragedy strikes, I'll just be derailed. Because life will all be about the here and now, and my happiness, and my pleasure, and my success. And James says, no, no, the coming is happening. And look at verse 8. Be patient and stand firm, because the coming is... What did he say? Read it with me. Because the coming is near. What does he mean by that word near? You might say, it's not that near. Uh, How near is 2,000 years? It's not that near, is it? can't be that soon. Let me try and explain what the word near means. I'll ask you a question. What did Jesus have to do to save you? What did Jesus have to do to save you? He had to, to be born, he had to live, he had to die, he had to rise. He had to return to his Father, he had to send his Spirit, and he had to return again from glory to pick you up and to take you home. That's what Jesus had to do to save us. What's he done? He was born, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, he sent his Spirit. The only thing he hasn't done yet, the only thing he hasn't done yet is to return to gather us home. Now that's what it means to be near And it's the only thing left to do. Everything else has been done. And your salvation will be complete when he returns. But it hasn't happened yet, and it's such a long time. No, it's not a long time. I love the uh, the books, Narnia. You ever read those books? Uh, My favourite is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I love the bit where they, they walk through the wardrobe and they enter Narnia. And they live in Narnia. And they live in Narnia for, what, Hours and days and weeks and months and, and even years in Narnia. And then they crawl back through the wardrobe into the world. And what's happened in the world? In all those years they've been in Narnia. And nothing's happened because it's just like 30 seconds in the Earth's time frame. And that's the kind of idea here with the coming of the Lord. That from an earthly time frame it seemed like a very, very long time. But from the heavenly Narnia time frame... <laughs> It's just a twinkle of the eye. He's coming. He's coming. It's, he's coming again. It's near. And when he comes, he's going to judge. Verse 9. The judge is standing at the door and he's knocking. He's waiting. He's coming to bring justice to this world and to bring justice to your life. And we're going to stand before him as judge. And we'll be judged for the way we've lived in his world. And if that's your worldview, if that's your perspective, the Lord is coming. It will change the way that you live. Let me share with you how I try and live with this perspective. Uh, I like to see the return of Christ a bit like this big curtain that God has placed. And I can see it, and it's just about to happen. It's near, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But you know what God does? In God's kindness, he, he doesn't put that curtain a long way in the distance. He doesn't show me the path called Paul Dale's life with all its twists and its turns and its valleys and its, and its highs and its lows and all the tragedy and all the good times. He didn't show me that. And he says, oh, look, it's going to happen but it's going to be a long way away. He just shows me this curtain in front of me and the next step of the road and the next step of my life and I wake up tomorrow and I've got the next step ahead of me and the curtain is still there and the next day the curtain is still there just one step upon one step upon one step and there'll be good times and there'll be really, really tough times. But the curtain's still there because the Lord is coming. That's how we're to live each day. 
could be today, it could be today, it could be today. And when you live like that, James 5 says, be patient. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits. He waits for the land to yield his valuable crop and how patient the farmer is for the autumn spring and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm. See, what does the farmer do? The farmer goes to a, to a field, he prepares the field, he, he sows a few seeds, and then what? He just waits. And he waits for the crops to grow. And he prays, he prays for the right rain at the right time, so he needs, verse 18, 7, he needs autumn rain to help the seed germinate, he needs the spring rain to produce the abundance of crop, but he's just waiting. And as he waits, he works, and you know, he, he weeds the soil a bit, He's just waiting and waiting and waiting. Waiting for the crop, waiting for the harvest. And that's the attitude that we should have. This is not home, I'm just waiting for heaven. And I'm going to wait, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to wait patiently. Uh, the word wait is not a, a passive word in the Bible. It's not kind of put your feet up and sit back and relax and just wait for God. The word wait is, is actually an active word. It's a, it's a it's a longing, it's a yearning, it's a pleading, it's a, a desire that says, oh, I just want this to happen, I'm waiting for it, it's going to be so good. It's a bit like when you're standing on the, uh, the train station waiting for a train, and you know, the, the display says, next train, five minutes. And you're thinking, oh, five minutes, I'm busy, gosh. And you look at the screen, five minutes, and you, sort of, you stare at the screen, and you're looking at it, five minutes, and then four minutes, and then three minutes, and then two minutes, and then one minute. And then it goes, next train, blank screen. And what happens? Everyone on the platform just turns, and they go... <laughs> and they're looking, and they're waiting, and there's the train, it's coming closer and closer. That's the kind of way to live on earth. You know? looking and longing and saying, please, Lord, are you coming today? I want you to come because this world is so messed up and my life, I'm in pain. Lord, take me from this world and take me to glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. I thought about this sermon. I could unpack the word patience. I'm a pretty impatient guy. I reckon I've got adult ADD. You know, I'm so impatient. But I don't reckon... The problem with us is patience. I reckon the problem with you and me is that we're just not waiting anymore. We're just not longing for the return of Christ. It's not even on our agenda. When was the last time you woke up and said, it could be today. Lord Jesus, you could come back today. Please, Lord, come, come. Why don't we wait like that? I just keep meeting these people and they're, they're planning their lives, they're planning their wedding, they're planning their overseas holidays, and they're, they're planning all their future, and they're planning their retirement, and there's not even a hint that they really believe that Christ could come back. Why don't we wait? I'll tell you why. Because life in Sydney is so darn good, isn't it? We've got it all. We've got the beaches, we've got the bodies, we've got the beautiful homes, and we've got the lifestyle, and we've got the luxuries, and who needs heaven when you've got Sydney? And we're just sucked in by these people who promise us satisfaction by things, and by jobs, and by relationships, and just by life. And you say, my life is great. And so we're not longing, we're not yearning, because my life's pretty good, until, until the tragedy strikes. 
And then you might stop and say, hey, please come, Lord Jesus. If I preached this sermon in Africa, I wouldn't have to talk about waiting, because every day they wait and they wait and they long for Jesus Christ to return. Are those men in prison? They're longing and they're waiting for Christ to return. Their wives are waiting for Christ to return. But we don't wait because life's good here. It's not that we just don't wait. As we wait, as we, as we don't wait, I should say, I reckon we just grumble, verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. It's not that we just don't wait, it's that we, we don't wait, and as we, do, as we don't wait, all we do is moan and complain about the things that we haven't got. No, no, we're called to be patient and to wait. And verse 8, to stand firm. Beautiful word, stand firm. Or literally, strengthen your heart. Strengthen your heart as you wait. Keep your heart focused. Don't be swayed by the world. Just have your heart loving Jesus and longing him, for come, him to come. That's the worldview that will change your life. Every day the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Let me give you the God view. The God view is this. The Lord is is compassionate. So persevere. If you think of God as cruel, if you think of God as distant, if you think of God as this all-controlling thing who doesn't really care for you, when the hard time hits, you'll just walk away from God. But James says, no, no, the Lord is compassionate. Look at it with me, verse 11. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. And you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of, of compassion and, and mercy. Look at those two words, compassion and mercy. I don't think they are words that immediately spring to mind when I think of the book of Job. If you don't know Job, Job is a story of a man who is godly, who is upright, who is God-fearing. And God gives Satan permission to destroy his cattle, to take away his possessions, to kill all his children, to take away his health, and then to, to put alongside him these wretched friends, so-called friends, who for months just tell him he's suffering because he sinned. He's suffering because he sinned. If God did that to you, took away your possessions and your children and your marriage and your house and your health and put alongside you these wretched friends who just told you that you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, what would you call God? Would compassion be a word that springs to mind? <laughs> Let me show you how, how God is compassionate to Job. God loved Job enough to break him and to humble him and to bring him to a point where he was completely and utterly dependent on God and utterly in love with God as his Lord and his Saviour in a way that he never was before. And that's the compassion and the mercy of God. Yes, he experienced suffering, severe suffering, but at the end of it, his relationship with God was rich and personal and real. Let me show you. Verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Look at that again. My ears had heard of you. 
I'd spent all my life worshipping you, uh, sitting in church and singing and praying, and I knew all my Bible back to front. I'd heard of you, God, but do you know what? As I look back now, as you've taken me through this severe and intense suffering, I can say the words, my eyes have seen you, I've experienced you, I've felt you, I know your comfort, I know your sovereignty, I know your control, I know that you are God and I am not, and I've experienced you, God, in a way that I never did before. And how did God do that? Through suffering. Intense suffering. And you know what? I hear it from the lips of people at this church. It was when God took my job away from me that he really humbled me and made me dependent on him in a way I never was, be- never was before. It was when, yeah, when my marriage fell apart that God really broke me. But you know what? <laughs> My relationship with God is so much more intimate now than it ever was before. It's when God took me to that deepest depression and took me my, my, all my health away that I experienced a richness in my relationship with God that I never really experienced before. Because that's the way that God is compassionate to us. He often uses suffering to show how big he is and how mighty he is and how faithful he is and how good he is and how compassionate he is. He's compassionate enough to to break us and humble us and refine us. He's done it to me. He's done it to me in a very real and a very (sighs) hard, distressing, tearful way. He broke me. But my relationship with God is so much more intimate now than it ever was before. I've seen him. Has God done that to you? God being compassionate to you to break you in a way that says, uh, my eye, my, I had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And the word that's used here is blessed. Verse 11, we consider blessed those who are persevered. Not happy. The blessing is a deeper, more intimate, restored relationship with your Saviour and a humble, repentant, penitent heart that says, you are God and I am not. Look at verse 10. Brothers, an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Uh, they were persecuted, but they were blessed. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward, not here on earth, but great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets. And they did, didn't they? Jeremiah was a prophet, a man of God, an upright man. He preached the gospel. He was persecuted, but he was blessed. Uh, Isaiah, a man of God who, who served God wholeheartedly, he was persecuted. He died a martyr's death, being sawn in two apparently, but he was blessed. And Ezekiel and Daniel was thrown to the lion's den. Countless Christians who have been persecuted, but they've been blessed. How have they been blessed? Because they're rock solid in their faith. And they know that God is compassionate and he's merciful and he's kind. And so what, what do we do? What do we do when the tough times comes? What do you do when your world falls apart? What do you do when your life is ripped away from you? In a word, one word, persevere. Persevere. Verse 11. We consider blessed those who have not given up, not walked away from God, not shouted at God, but those who have persevered. And you've heard of Job's perseverance. The word just means endure. 
It means press on. It means have steadfast, look solid, hourly, minutely, secondly, trust and confidence that your God is good and your God is mighty and your God is compassionate and your God is merciful. That's what it means to persevere, to endure and to press on because you know what? Because you know that the Lord is coming and you're heading for glory. I'm not here this time next week. Hopefully this time next week I will have crossed a finish line in an Ironman. It's an endurance race. It will take me about 12 hours. I'll swim for 4K and I'll ride for 180K and I'll, and I'll run for 42K. And it's called an endurance race. It's not called a sprint. It's not for the wimps. It's called an endurance race. And let me tell you, there'll be times next Sunday where every part of my body will ache. Believe me, I've done it before. And my legs will hurt and my feet will hurt and my arms will hurt and my head will hurt. And there'll be times when I just go, I can't move one more step. But I've got a choice. I can stop and not finish and not endure. Or I can just keep plodding and keep pressing on. Why? Because there's a finish line. And I'm heading for the finish line with a, a pathetic looking medal. <laughs> and, oh, and a complimentary towel. <laughs> but what are we heading for? You're heading for a place in glory and eternity with your Father and eternity worshipping your Saviour. And yes, you're going to face tough times in life. And yes, your heart will be ripped out of you and your life will fall apart. But that's okay. Because your Lord's compassionate and he's merciful and you're heading for glory. So just persevere and endure and press on and hear those words, well done, my good and my faithful servant. Let me pray. Father, we, yeah, we recognise that life is really tough. There are things which happen to us which we don't like and we can't explain and we often shout and cry out why. But we stand before you tonight as people who, who trust that you are good and you're compassionate. Thank you for the way that you break us, for the way that you humble us, for the way that you rip us apart to refine us, to prepare us for heaven. Thank you, Father, for the way that you sustain us when we just can't stop or can't keep on going, that you somehow give us the strength and the perseverance to press on. Thank you for the way your Spirit does that to us. Lord, thank you that you're going to come again. Oh, what great and glorious words that you're going to come, come to wrap up this world, to take us home, to take us to glory. Oh, Lord, I do pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.